WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new TKO graphic novel, Graven Eye, as well as the 2020 graphic novel, A Map of the Sun, and the image book, Prism Stalker, Sloan Leong. Welcome, Sloan. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, the official first question for first-time guests, uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Ooh, first comics. Um, a lot of them were floppy, like, superhero comics that I got from, like, a little mm, snack stand in Hawaii where I grew up. Okay. Um, and that was around, I was, like, 13 or so. Um, and, yeah, there I wasn't exposed to comics very much until until around 14 years old when a Barnes and Noble kind of popped up on the island. And then finally there was manga and like actual like American graphic novels. Um, And I'm trying to think of some of the earliest stuff. I mean, Dragon Ball, uh, because I, you know, I was, it was easy to watch anime rather than read Mm -hmm. manga. So as soon as I had access to manga, I was like, oh, I know this. I know Dragon Ball. I know Sailor Moon. Um, Yeah, I read lots of shoujo manga. Lots of shonen, pretty much all the classics. Those were kind of like my formative um, comics uh, in my childhood. Excellent. Yeah, I imagine, you know, kind of Barnes and Noble being your your access point, especially, you know, uh, in the in the in the old days, you know, manga readily accessible, whole shelves of it, you know, comics yeah. going back 20, even really 15 years, still, you know, realism wasn't really flooding the market with like OGNs and trades yet at that point. Yeah, totally. But uh, you are here to talk about uh, Graven Eye, your new uh, graphic novel from TKO. Uh, it is already available digitally. It'll be out in print uh, at the end of, of November. Uh, Matt, would you like to read that sweet, dramatic, solicit text for the listeners? Absolutely. Isla's house has seen its share of blood, horror, and the depths of the human soul. Cursed with sentience. It is destined to observe the terrors that lurk inside each and every one of us. Yeah, maybe. Um, So what is, uh, (laughs) uh, what is the origin of this project? The origin. So this story actually started as like a short prose story. um, And it was originally just like the house's dialogue, its narration. Um, and very little description of the two characters that, that were in the house. So it was just the house's perspective on what was happening. Um, so I, I wrote that story. I submitted it around, but people thought it was, or like people, editors at magazines thought it was a bit too dark. Um, so I kind of trunked it and I was like, I'll return to this. Maybe I'll make it a comic or something. Um, and then later on, like in 2018, 2019, um, I was talking with Anna um who's the artist on the book and we were trying to think of something to collaborate on uh this is her first long form comic work and yeah I shared her I shared the story with her and it just clicked with her and she immediately like like took off on concept art designing the house designing the characters and everything she sent me I was like yes like that's it that's that's Isla that's Marie that's the house like she just had this perfect like manifestation of everything in her head from the story. So yeah. Great. Uh, how did it end up at uh, TKO? How did that end up being its home? Um, we pitched it around a few places um, and TKO was just the quickest. They were really interested in the story. Um, they like the prose a lot. And so they were, they just gave us an offer really quick and they pay really well. Um, so yeah, that's how that's how it happened. Right on. Um, how did how did you uh, connect with with Anna uh, in the first place? Um, so we knew each other from a long time ago, back when we were like teens. Uh, we were both on the site called Enter Void, mm-hmm. um, which is a site for cartoonists where you uh, create an original character and you like battle other cartoonist characters via the medium of comics. <laughs> mm. So it's like your characters battle and your stories, but you're also competing uh, like who can draw the best comic. So like after at a certain deadline, which could be like a week or three weeks, you'll post your comics online. Um, and then the other cartoonists would like grade you on it and vote for like their favorite. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like this comics tournament site and that's kind of where I learned how to draw mm-hmm. comics um <laughs> and it was really fun but yeah we were both on there for a little bit 
um and then we kind of drifted apart I kind of I followed her on you know social and stuff but um yeah I think I, I don't remember what it was that like kind of drew us together for this I think I saw her posting some art on Twitter and I was like why isn't Anna drawing like comics like all the time because she's just like an incredible artist and has such a unique style and it's just like masterful like across the board with like inking techniques and watercolor um so I was like hey Anna have you ever thought about doing comics full-time and she was like yeah I want to but I don't know you know like what to work on or whatever um the details are very blurry because I feel like our like Grave and I came together like so fast <laughs> but yeah <laughs> I, I I like this the, this this sort of psych con- concept where it, it's it's like uh you know uh, like super smash brothers for like comics making with everybody's like ocs kind of pitted against each other that's that's exactly it yeah exactly <laughs> and it was it was fun because it was like you know you could create a character that had like superpowers or maybe they were just normal or um you know the, st- the stories themselves didn't have to have like fighting in it they could just be like your character and the other person's character like going out to coffee mm-hmm. or it could just be anything you know so there was so many different like um uh, styles of storytelling happening and visual mm-hmm. styles and it was just like really fun for me at the time okay, i was and, curious if it was bracketed like you know this was the superhero bracket this was the fantasy bracket this was the slice of life life bracket or you could have for want of less mainstream examples batman versus francine from strangers <laughs> in paradise Back yeah that's that was basically it like there there would be tournaments where they would just like randomize the characters and then you would you know be forced to you know battle them or whatever most of the time you were like you would challenge a cartoonist yourself like oh i want to fight so and so but there's these larger oct tournaments um and you would be forced to yeah kind of get into situations where you had a character that was like totally from a different genre altogether and you had to make it work which was also very fun I like the I like, I like the idea of the slice of like life bracket. Like there there are two characters going for coffee. Whoever gets their name spelled right by the barista wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or whoever gets the weirder spelling from the barista wins. Yes. Uh, also yeah. a bonus. <laughs> Shifting rules. That's you know that's what keeps it fresh. <laughs> so uh, you wear a lot of of hats. You know, you're you're a writer. You're an artist. Uh, you know, you're you're editing anthologies and and, uh, and other projects. Uh, you know, when you're working with another artist, uh, you know, and you're not drawing the book, are there things in that dynamic do you that you try to be more mindful of? Like, do you catch yourself being like, hmm, you know, like actually, I would draw it like this, or here, let me like fix this. You have to like stop yourself from that kind of thing. Um, yeah, most of the time, I, I mean, I don't think it's hard to stop myself because like for me, when I like want to work with a collaborator, like I basically want their vision, mm-hmm. like they bring something that I can't bring to it. So like, like uh, our my scripts that I wrote for Anna are basically like prose. I didn't break down panels or layouts or anything. I totally trusted her with that. Um, and that's kind of a, a, a reflection of how I like to work. I don't like when writers, you know, try and like, you know, muscle paneling onto me, sure, <laughs> you know, <sure>. like panel <laughs> ones, like, you know, you know, the establishing shot, it's gotta be like two thirds of the way down the page. I'm like, oh my God, that, that just kills my drive to draw. Like, no, like nothing quicker does that. So sure. yeah, I talked with Anna and I, we kind of experimented. I was like, should I try breaking stuff down for you? But honestly, yeah, it turned out really great. Just trusting her visual instincts and how she lays out a page. Um, yeah, the other thing I thought about was, I mean, she has so many strengths that I don't, which is another reason that I was attracted to her as a collaborator. Like, I couldn't draw all the angles of the houses and the rooms that she does. Like, mm-hmm. her sense of architecture and space is just, like, incredible. Um, the way she designed the house, which was, like, I was, like, is it asking too much to, like, basically, I want the house to look almost like a like Frankenstein together from like different aesthetic eras Mm. and she was able to pull that off she did research and she was able to you know the molding is different in certain rooms like the paneling on the walls the carpet or the wood on the floor like just the attention to detail there she she was just totally on it um and yeah just knowing what she enjoyed drawing as well I tried to play to that as um 
I try to do that with all my collaborators. Like that's also, cause what, if, if you're giving them stuff that they like to draw, they're going to be like inspired and excited instead of like giving them like, I don't know, like a cityscape or like a highway full of cars. Like that'll, that's no fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a highway full of cars with crowds standing on either end and horses coming through. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, because Grave and I is told from the perspective of the house, you know, you, you can see in the bones how it started as, as a short prose story. Uh, you know, and as someone who's written a bunch of, of, of short fiction, you know, how do you decide when a project is prose and should stay prose or, you know, when it, when it should be uh, or maybe would be served better as a, as a graphic novel? You know, is there a point that you hit? when you're writing it and, and not necessarily with Grave and I, maybe with other projects we're like, oh shit, I kind of want to draw this actually. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, this one, I would have been fine leaving it as a pro story. I thought it was strong on its own. Um, but, you know, talking with Anna and seeing like her concept art after reading it, like to me that just like, um, I don't know, it just sort of exploded into possibility for me. And then I was able to have all these you know, you know, more like conceptual visual ideas to go along with it. So then I was like, oh yeah, I can totally see this in, in comic form. Um, but yeah, my process is usually like weighing the pros and cons of like limiting something to prose or bringing it to a visual medium. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Prism Stalker, that's, that started out as like a short story, then it was interactive fiction, then that grew too long to be interactive fiction. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll try a novel, maybe an illustrated novel. <laughs> um, and then I was able to kind of, um, kind of refine it into a shape that I thought would finally be good for comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest elements was like, uh, in, Pro- in Prism Stalker, there's an element of like this, like psychic martial arts. And when these characters like attack each other, the style of the art changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was something that I couldn't achieve just with prose. Like I had to be able to draw it and show the reader this like gigantic shift in perspective that these characters and perception that these characters are going through. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and it's like, there's also benefits to not having that sort of like um, granular visual control which is something that is fun with prose that level of like ambiguity and um relying on like the reader's imagination is also really powerful mm-hmm. so yeah it's all it's i don't know there's pros and cons for each and sometimes like right now i'm really in a prose state of mind um mm-hmm. both for the reasons i just mentioned and also just because it's faster <laughs> like i can write so many more short stories and, and I, like i wrote a novel last year that would have taken me years to draw as a comic because it has like giant mechs in it um which would just like murder me if i had to draw that as a comic so <laughs> <laughs> but when they come to you for the adaptation no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh um are there are there different itches that making comics scratches for you versus prose you know apart from obviously the, the speed with which you can finish the project you know or is it all just sort of you know the the, the power of creation just is different for us yeah um yeah i think there's definitely an ease of um creation and pro like it's it's an easier process to be writing um because there's not too many ways to break the form of prose um I mean poetry does this a lot obviously but I feel like Mm -hmm. that's still within it's in the framework of words and it's in the framework of usually linearity um whereas with comics I feel like you you can play with all of that like you can have prose in comics Mm -hmm. um but what you can't have is like um you know imagery you can't have paneling you can't have if someone comes to prose or not they may not know different like like visual comic conceits like Mm -hmm. um you know like scrawlixes or you know speed lines or like little shivery lines to you know convey that a character is cold or scared Mm -hmm. um there's all this symbology that people who that don't read comics wouldn't they wouldn't get um so that that plays a part in how i you know, imagine something, either a comic or a story. And I try and imagine like, I don't know, kind of my audience. I'm not always thinking of my audience, but I'm thinking what kind of like visual tools or 
language tools I want to use in it and what will like support the, the story the best. Um, how much of prepping to write this, uh, you know, write the story uh, was researching uh, taxidermy and uh, getting, getting grossed out? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually didn't do a lot of research. I was like, you know, you can taxidermy stuff. Anna was the one who had to research it because she had to draw it. <laughs> she yes. had to draw Isla, you know, going through the process of like, you know, scraping all the fat out and the meat out and then, you know, boiling the bones and all this other, you know, these details that I was like, draw this scene of her skinning and preparing an animal. <laughs> That's all I had to write. <laughs> and she's like, okay, no. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, and I'm like, I'm, also fine with like a little bit of like BSing like if she wanted to just like you know guess at, how, at the process and draw it like I probably wouldn't have questioned it and I doubt a reader would question it unless they were like a literal taxidermist mm -hmm. but she did a lot of research for this to make it kind of realistic so um yeah yeah it was a lot of relying on Anna for the visuals and stuff I, uh... any taxidermist who is able to be like well i've created animal human hybrids so yeah. that's someone you don't necessarily want to be taking advice from yeah true that's fair <laughs> <laughs> that's not how a wolf with crows exploding out of it would look oh, yeah they're like that technique would never work okay <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. so uh the book opens with uh marie the the housekeeper catching your skin on the door, uh, door bolt and getting it cut open, which I, I love an establishing sequence because it kind of bonds her in blood to the house in a way that past visitors maybe haven't, you know, but I, I also, I also kind of wondered whether it makes my own house sentient because of the number of times I've scraped my knuckles on cabinet shelf edges over the years, uh, especially <laughs> yeah. in colder months. Uh, you know, it was new construction when we bought it, but those, those builders grade materials are out for me. Uh, <laughs> but the funny thing is the house that I, I grew up in, or, or at least spent my teenage years in, someone actually died in that house, the previous owner. Oh, wow. And I don't even think about that. Like I never once was like, man, I bet there's ghosts in here, but you know, I get, I get some bloody knuckles in the winter and I'm like, the, 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 this, this house is haunted. You're like, this oh, is it. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, my house is 115 years old. And oh, my wow. wife and I are the first people to own it who weren't a member of the one family. It was passed from three generations wow. before it was sold. So mm -hmm. I know this place is haunted. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I see my cat just sort of staring off into space, it's like, oh, it's one of the, you're, you're looking at one of the Montgomery's, huh, Beth? Yeah. <laughs> but, but we take good care of the house. So I think they're chill. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, okay, Montgomery we'll sounds it. like a haunting name. <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, those those old Mayflower bones. <laughs> uh, you know, as as somebody who did move around a lot growing up, were you ever in one place long enough for it to feel haunted or to give you those like creepy vibes? Um, not really. This is that's also this story is kind of a departure in that sense for me because I also don't have like a I don't know I don't feel like any one place or one house as my home it's always just like my family that's my home so wherever they are I feel comfortable you know um so it was fun to try and get into the mindset both of like Isla who is part of you know like this intergenerational um home ownership you know mm -hmm. and then also the house itself which like really values and loves its its owners and the people who have lived in it um and yeah just uh being able to like litter the house and all these elements of history like they have like family photos everywhere there's like lots of taxidermy on the walls um just the construction of it itself kind of um conveys that it's been like you know rehabbed and redesigned a lot of times by whoever lived in it Mm -hmm. um so yeah it was fun to think about what it's like to live in one place for a long time and how you know people mold their environment around them to to suit them mm -hmm. Sorry. um isla is is a is a fascinating character because you know she's she's a monster she she undergoes these these transformations on the page and there are recognizable elements at play but she's very explicitly not you know of, you can't call her a vampire. She's not a werewolf, anything like that. You know, we have a sentient house, but we're, we're certainly not, you know, we're not looking at the shining. We're not looking at the Amityville horror. You know, how much were you and, and Anna looking to, to catch yourself 
to avoid leaning into the familiar. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was something we were talking about early on because uh, I was playing with the idea of maybe giving um, Isla some sort of like speculative element to her nature, like lycanthropy like, like or, you know, vampirism or something. But one thing that I'm not crazy about when you kind of like name the monster in your story is that it instantly gives it like this context of rules and safety because then you're like, oh, so we know how to defeat a vampire. We know how to defeat a werewolf. Like then it loses, kind of loses this edge to me. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so we kind of kept Isla as just someone who is very um, unstable and like her, our perception of her changes. Um, she does grow more like visually monstrous at times, but she's still just a human person. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, same with the house. The house is like, again, I didn't want to do like a literal haunting where it was like maybe like her ancestors like possessing the house. Like to me, it was more interesting to literally just make like personify all the elements of what makes a house a house mm -hmm. um, and play with that. So a lot of the narration is the house either comparing the people inside it to themselves and like element and like comparing them to like elements of archi architecture and elements of like, you know, how a house even functions as a way to like relate to them. Um, and uh, yeah, it was fun to kind of, you know, steer clear of that because I, I felt it was a, a bit more challenging when I was trying to kind of weave together the themes of the story. Uh, one thing I've, I've always loved in comics is when they do the cross section of, you know, whatever building it is, uh, you know, and, and, and this book also has that. You see Marie going, going about her day, cleaning up the house, uh, you know, in a double page splash. What, you know, how much time, I guess, did you and Anna, and, and I guess particularly Anna, because she drew it all, spend kind of on that particular two-page section, uh, you know, what is what is the secret to a good cross-section of a house draw? <laughs> I know, I wish Anna was here. Um, Cause I was like, I was like, could we? I had to talk to her first before I put it in the script. I was like, how do you feel about doing, you know, a spread of, you know, like a dissection of the house? Like, is that gonna be a total nightmare to draw? And she's like, oh, that sounds cool. You know, I'll give it a try. Um, and so like the line in the script is just like, you know, you know, we can see Isla and Marie moving around the house, Marie's cleaning, Isla's kind of going about her business and, you know, the purpose of the page is to just give us, you know, this impression of how large and strange the house is. Um, and Anna just, I think it took like maybe a week or two. I can't really remember, but <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, she just nailed it. Like <laughs> she just sent it to me and I was like, Wow, it's perfect. Uh, <laughs> no, no edits, no comments. It's great. I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's like our the crowning jewel. Like it's one of my favorite pages in the in the book for sure. It's great. So, what are some of your horror touchstones? What are the horror stories that impacted you? Let's see. Um, horror stories, I would say Brian Evanson is a big inspiration. I really love his, his short stories a lot. Um, I just think he has such a unique sense of, um, he's has a, a unique skill and like defamiliarizing the familiar in a really strange way. Um, and I find his sense of horror very like layered. And um, yeah, I'm just like a huge Evanson head. <laughs> um, let's see, I love Shirley Jackson, um, you know, Haunting of Hill House. Uh, a lot of her short stories are excellent. Um, who else? I think probably my biggest touchstones are gonna be movies though. So I love Cronenberg, I love Argento. Um, I love Takashi Miike. Um, I love a lot of old, um, kind of like 70s, 80s Japanese horror, the more exp experimental, um, kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. But basically, 
they're kind of in the same vein as like Tetsuo the Iron Man. So a lot of a lot of body horror. Um, but I really like when they kind of combine body horror with like a, a sense of like almost like tenderness and and like self reflection and almost sometimes like self acceptance. Um, I find there's like a really interesting balance in a lot of those movies um, where it's just like a complete nightmare, but also these characters find something within themselves that was lost to them before. Um, what else? I'm trying to think. Um, comics wise, you know, Judge Ito's classic. I don't think there's any anyone really like him. He's pretty singular. Um, Kazuo Mez, Drifting Classroom, also a touchstone. Um, yeah, those are those are the ones that are coming to me right now. And then towards something more recent, as judging by your Twitter, you watch a lot of horror movies now. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the recent ones that have really struck you? Yeah, um, the recent ones, uh, I watched Pulse by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, which is excellent. Um, and also Cure by the same director. Those are just like really amazing. Um, probably some of the eeriest stuff I've seen since like, when I was a teen and saw the ring for the first time. <laughs> that's, a, that's another foundational movie is the ring. I saw that when I was in middle school, um, someone brought it in at the time. It was like, we were getting ready for like summer break. So every Friday we could like kind of watch a movie in our last period. And someone brought in the ring and the teacher was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and I was just like, so scared the whole time. I was like, why are we watching this? But uh, yeah. Great movie. Um, <laughs> completely awful to watch as, as a child. <laughs> um, uh, at the, uh, I guess on the anime side, I was also really into um, the Ghost in the Shell film. That was really foundational. Another thing that I probably shouldn't have watched as young as I did. It was like in elementary school and it was like on, I don't know, Adult Swim or some sort mm -hmm. of like after, after dark program. And I was like, Oh my god this lady robot just got torn apart this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> just like you know mind expanding um so yeah those are a few inspirations have you seen uh, edgar wright's last night in soho yet not yet not okay yet. then i won't say because i binged grave and i right before going in to see last night oh, in soho nice. so i'm trying to figure out if they actually are somewhat in conversation with each other or mm. if it was just my brain sort of conflating some of the themes of abusive patriarchy and creepy houses oh yeah interesting that makes me really eager to see it and again Did i'm not sure if did you so, enjoy it? Oh yeah, I, I'm yeah, a I'm a big Edgar Wright. I mean, it's not as it's closer to Baby Driver than to your Shaun's of the Dead. I mean, oh, the, okay. the mic drops are still there because it's Edgar Wright, and Edgar Wright loves a mic drop. Right, right, right. But it's more in that stylish sort of not quite movie musical but music influencing the whole feel of the film right and it's very creepy in a in a, a really good way but i i don't want, i'm trying to avoid saying anything because you yeah. shouldn't know anything more than what the trailers have shown you going in nice that sounds really really fun yeah very cool uh, so one thing I was curious about, uh, you know, obviously you're somebody who has done a lot of, of interesting and, and amazing work with, with color in some of your past projects. Uh, you know, here uh, we're dealing with spot reds and pinks, which obviously, you know, gothic horror, blood, you know, used effectively. Uh, how much did you two talk about the use of, of the spot red? You know, were either you of you worried about underdoing it or overdoing it at any point? Um, not really. When when Anna did the sample pages, which was I actually can't remember if they're I think there are still included. It's the scene where um, Isla's walking through uh, the snowy forest and a wolf kind of turns and looks looks at her, or looks in her direction, um, and I think she 
pound like pounces on it and kills it and there's a bunch of you know blood and like red watercolor washes um and i i, I just immediately knew that she knew, had the restraint to use that um i also we we discussed it and i just wasn't really feeling her work in in digital color like mm-hmm. we, we weren't sure she could execute um like actual like full color watercolors for this particular project just um, because of budget and time constraints. Um, And like you were saying, it's very like traditional to have like black, white, and red. Like it's super, it's very stylish and moody. Mm -hmm. And I I thought that was cool too. Um, But yeah, I also just, I actually really like black and white, even though I'm known for color, I would Mm -hmm. prefer if I could work in black and white, which is like how I read most of my comics, which is manga. It's all in black and white. So that's like, to me, that's like the pure, pure comics are in black and white. uh so yeah i was really thrilled that tko let us do that because most comic publishers they prefer full color because they just sell better supposedly but i don't know Mm. um so yeah i was really happy that we got to do this in like a really limited palette Mm -hmm. Um, so there is a a month about a month gap between the digital release of the book and the print release which is is, i believe uh, november 30th uh, you know, came out, yeah, it came out online October 20th. It'll be out in print November 30th. I wrote the dates right there. Should have just kept reading. Uh, <laughs> are there advantage, advantages to that in terms of promotion, sort of having that second window where the book is out, people are talking about it, but there's like, you know, a second chance to make a first impression, uh, so to speak. Right. Um, I mean, I think we're going to find out because originally TKO's like strategy is they they like to release digital and print at the same time as soon as it is, as it's announced. So the first time you hear about it, mm-hmm. you'll be able to buy it. So like that wasn't the case this time because, you know, our print books were delayed because mm-hmm. of, you know, whatever the. The same thing shipping. that's holding up everybody. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, Just wave your hands and say all of it. Yes. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was actually supposed to be dropped like during the beginning of October, I believe had to push it back, push it back. And then they Mm -hmm. decided they would do this, you know, digital first release and then the print at the end of the month. So I'm hoping this is a good strategy that people will, you know, check out the digital version. And if they don't buy it, they'll, you know, pre-order the print. So Mm -hmm. we'll see. The jury's out still. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in a question here from our, uh, uh, number one uh, grand Twitter inquisitor, Asma Fango. She wanted to know uh, if you became a ghost bonded to your home, would you spook your new tenants? <laughs> I'm sorry. Me, I'm going I'm to read that again. Uh, if you became a ghost bonded to your home, would you spook your new tenants or just play pranks on them? Hmm. Man, it would really be a nightmare if I was bonded to a home. That seems like so boring. <laughs> I would probably be really upset. So I'd probably try and spook the people in there. <laughs> <laughs> terrorize them get revenge for being bored and stuck in like a rental <laughs> uh, rental at least might be more interesting than a single family well i guess it's the question of do you want the you know consistency of be seeing the same people it's do you prefer a long-form narrative or an anthology Oh, okay. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, hmm. I don't know. I feel like if it if it's like you know someone's house that they bought and I get to see like an extended family grow up in it, that could be cool because then I could really get to know them. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and also maybe the house would be better because it was like you know not a rental. I feel like a lot of the rentals I've lived in are just like really crappy. <laughs> so maybe it'd be like a nice, you know, a fancy house or something. I don't know. I'm really stretching my imagination here. <laughs> <laughs> if it's if it's a rental with sort of the high turnover rate that I have to imagine would come from haunting a rental, you know, and theoretically ghosts are are, you know, beings that have unfinished business. Is there a quantum leap style element where each, you know, you hope that each tenant you haunt will uh, get you closer to the leap home or the afterlife in this case? <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's, That's a good idea. <laughs> Interesting concept. It, it's, it's a little bit uh, 
Steve Orlando's ghosted in L.A.? No, that was uh, Cena Grace. Cena Grace is ghosted in L.A. I knew it was an ass. And someone we had on the podcast. We're nearly 200 episodes in. I'm mixing up all of our Oh, nice. My <laughs> brain hurts. Oh, but, man. Yeah. It reminds me a little of Cena Grace's Ghost in L.A. For editing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh Last year, you had A Map to the Sun, uh, your first, second graphic novel about uh, high school girls basketball. Um, had you read other you know, sports comics or sports manga to kind of get a feel for that, for that genre? Yeah, um, some of my favorite comics are sports comics. So you have like um, Adachi Mitsuru's, you know, he actually has like tons of sports series that are extremely well known. Um, their titles are blurring together in my head, but basically like <laughs> almost all of his comics, I, I just really like them. They have a really unique sense of like action that's very like minimal. Um, and he's also great at like, not just sports drama, but like interpersonal drama between his characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, like Takiko Inui's Real and Slam Dunk, his basketball masterpiece. Like those are just, you know, master classes in storytelling and sports drawing sports comics and yeah those are just unbelievable um trying to think of what else i'm not super crazy about sports comics that are really like um what's the one like ice shield 21 um where it's like hyper shonen it's really fun it's just like not the types of sports comics i like where it's like they have like um you know they throw the football and it like lights on fire and they have like you know pseudo superpowers or whatever (laughs) none of those are bad they're just not for me yeah um but yeah i really like the kind of like low-key slice of life narratives in in sports comics um trying to think of any others Mm, there's also like ones that are not sports like i also really like when there's like cooking competition mangas or like golf mangas i read a golf manga like several years ago that was really interesting um i shouldn't say read technically because it was in japanese so i could only you know just look at that i looked at it it was great (laughs) yeah (laughs) absorbed Um, yeah yeah, exactly absorbed um and yeah so i was just i had this idea in my head it started as just a mini comic mini comic which was a prologue um that was like nominated for an ignatz back in 2017 i can't remember um i pitched it around and yeah i was just really hungry to see some sports sports comics in in the american you know, graphic novel scene, which it's extremely lacking in our part of the world. That's thinking of other sports comics now. Yeah. I know you can't, yeah. can you? There's no, <laughs> more, there's very uh, few. Yeah. Dragon Wait, hoops. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> no, yes. Number one answer on the board. <laughs> yes. My, my, uh, my, my Eisner nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what were uh, the odds two basketball graphic novels from the same publisher i was like why would you do me like that why <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's a couple other um basketball graphic novels by like other like bipoc women that are out there they're either being serialized as web comics or being kickstarted. um i think there's like a I'm trying to think of some others i don't know why but it's pretty popular among like the web comic group right now um exploring exploring sports absolutely james sturm's the golem's mighty swing what what is that the golem's mighty swing it's i want to say semi historical about a jewish baseball team back in the 20s whose lead players dressed as the golem oh okay cool Uh, yeah i i read that many many years ago as both a baseball fan and a Jew. It was fascinating. <laughs> Very cool. I've never heard of this. This looks awesome. Back in 2001, it looks like. Yeah. Drawn yeah. in quarterly. Sick. Um, yeah, I don't know why the sports isn't like explored more because I feel like we're a very sports-oriented culture, like basketball, football, like so, you know, there's a fandom out there for it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I don't know why is. it hasn't I don't know why it hasn't broken into like the comic scene or even, I don't know, 
I know there's a new like sci-fi book out that's about like like futuristic baseball that's getting great reviews. Um, it's called The Body. What is it called? Hold on. Uh, I believe it's called The Body Scout by Lincoln Michael. And it's a science fiction thriller about a like a baseball scout, which is really cool. But yeah, I wish there'd be I, I wish there was more like hybrid genres and stuff in comics. Sure. I, I feel like we're starting like boom i know has put out like a ton of different kinds of sports comics uh including I mean, there was the avant-garde i think yeah, right. like a couple of years ago it was about oh like, the fencing one yeah, no fence. that was that was a different fence. one there was there was fence there was dodge city there oh, was okay, the okay. avant-garde that one was was uh girls volleyball or excuse me basketball mm. I, I might even be forgetting forgetting one but i do feel like especially you know western comics very can be very stuck in its ways um replace can be with is uh you know and i almost feel like you know that dichotomy of that you know that sort of false binary of like nerds versus jocks from like the 1980s is still something that's like a little bit too ingrained in the culture and needs to yeah you know totally but, you know we're we're we're, we're, we're working on it we're all, we're yeah. all working on it <laughs> totally if there was like um what are like some like lesser known or like lesser explored genres or like concepts in comics that you would like to see Ooh. Question. not to turn the tables on you but i'm curious. no 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 we actually <laughs> we actually like when when the guests do that uh liana kangas has done that to us twice i'm thinking more slice of life uh, at least on my end i that that's probably a, a genre that i could stand to read more of yeah yeah i mean i'm trying to figure out if the genres i like are influenced by the comics i like or mm -hmm. i've i think i've come to read a lot of the other stuff in comics because they're the genres i like i'm a big mystery and crime person mm. in my prose reading right. and that's a genre in comics that in the past 10 to 15 years has gotten this big renaissance hmm. so it's there's less of that and i've always been a big you know science fiction and fantasy and horror person mm -hmm. i'd love i'd love some more urban fantasy mm, okay a little bit of that but i think urban fantasy in comics is often quickly eaten by superheroes because superheroes right. are somewhat urban fantasy at least your sort of mainstream superheroes so i think right. there's often a lot of competition there i mean you get mm -hmm. some things like uh a Pestering's Destiny New York, which is very much urban fantasy, but you don't get a lot of that. You get more of the fan, the realism in an urban or fantastic setting in comics right. than the fantastic mm -hmm. in a, or a, you know mainstream American comics. Mm. I mean, you get more stuff like saga which is a big crazy fantastic concept that then has these very day-to-day slice-of-lifey urban you know fan tropes in the fantasy world versus right. ramming the fantasy into the real world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which i had never thought about until i just said that good for me yeah <laughs> well when i think of urban fantasy i think of like um maybe like fables maybe like um i guess sandman i was maybe sandman's got a bit of urban fantasy but sandman treads a little closer to magical realism than urban fantasy Hmm, and I mean, there's, and again, you, we're, there, there's a splitting hairs in some of these definitions. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, I always just, I picture Gaiman more in the magical realism camp than the urban fantasy camp. Hmm. But that's 
possibly because so much of my influence on urban fantasy is fantasy noir type stuff in that right. urban fantasy often has a crime bent to it. Yeah, yeah, that's your, true. Your True Bloods or your Dresden Files or your Dan Shamble zombie PI kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, fables is definitely, yes, there is definitely an urban fantasy thing going on with fables. Would you categorize like Hellboy also as urban fantasy or was that is that more like? Then you're also getting the question of when does something graduate from urban fantasy into horror? Hmm. Because horror and urban fantasy are, there's a very thin line there as well. But I think, I mean, part of that is that urban fantasy isn't necessarily there to generate the terror that horror does. Right, yeah. You, You can have urban fantasy that isn't scary. You can't have horror that isn't going for the scare. Right, totally. And Hellboy isn't necessarily always going for the scare. I think I, think, I think. I feel it's less horror and more almost like a gothic thing, where it's just kind of like a both an aesthetic and also like kind of like a low simmering horror, which again yeah. is kind of splitting hairs. But yeah, it's interesting to think about. Hmm. I mean, what about I've you, been, Dan? You know, I, it's funny. I've been, I've been thinking about this, and the one thing I was like, you know, I bet whatever. I say in terms of like genres, I could like, you know, want to read more of like they're there, you know, and I'm just, it's one of those things where it's just like, I'm not looking in the right places. Like I, I said, slice of life. I'm like, well, why aren't you looking at more webtoon? You, you know, uh, calling myself a dummy here, but you know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's just another one of those things where it's like, well, let's see, I've been reading comics since like 1993. So I've like, you know, I'm, I'm trained to sort of go to the one place <laughs> over and over again. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Got to expand those horizons. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, one thing I was, I was curious about uh, what is, going back a little bit farther in time to uh to to prism stalker uh you know what was something that 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 book kind of taught you about making comics Mm. um what did it teach me i mean i feel like i'm always learning with every page like i'm always trying to you know do something new even if it's subtle which is like Mm -hmm. not always notice noticeable to a reader but it's noticeable to me usually it's like um, the material I'm using, how I'm trying to draw something. Um, for me, it's all, all the process is always, it's a learning process all the time. Um, on the, let's see, I guess on the business side, it was pretty eye opening, just like, because, mm. it, you know, it was like immediately canceled. Um, <laughs> like the first issue came out and it didn't make enough pre-orders. So it was canceled okay. before anyone basically got to read the whole thing um so that was like a really rude awakening (laughs) i was Mm -hmm. like oh they can just like not give this a chance even though they've already poured like so much money into it which was also strange to me like because they didn't advertise it i was like i don't know it's very confusing um but that is comics publishers for you sometimes (laughs) they you know if something doesn't look like it's gonna be you know a bankable ip then they're just going to you know scratch it out and mm-hmm. you know start over try something else um storytelling wise i mean i was trying to do a lot with the story in prism stalker because there's like both permeability between the characters thoughts because it's like you know like a psychic planet so everyone's thoughts are kind of you know known to each other in like subtle ways that they don't actually understand mm-hmm. um and so yeah just kind of like I was really struggling with how clear I wanted to make things to the reader and also um, balancing the level of like ambiguity and suspense in that. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that depends on each reader. Some people really liked it. Some people were like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so it's a hit and miss, but um, I, I like it as it is. And I think this next volume that I'm working on now um, we'll build and build on what I've done and clarify a lot. So, yeah. That's great. Um, are you, are you going back through image for, for the, the second round? 
Uh, no, it'll be out through Dark Horse next year. Oh, very cool. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Will they be doing a reprint of Volume 1? We're working on that right now. Image still has the rights to um, like sell out their stock of the first volume, but I'm pretty sure once they're out of it, they'll be able to revert the rights to me, and I'm hoping to you know, get them so I can reprint Volume 1 and 2. Very cool. Um, you're also currently putting together Death in the Mouth, a uh, horror anthology featuring uh, BIPOC and other marginalized creators. Uh, today, as we are recording, November yes. 1st is actually the last day for submissions. Uh, mm-hmm. how, is, how is that coming along? Oh, man, it's like so crazy. So this is like my first time really slushing for a project like this, you know, short mm-hmm. fiction up to like 6,000 words. And then also I'm looking at art po- portfolios um, cause there's going to be il- illustrations for each short story that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I've read up in the last two months, I've, I've read like 250 short stories and it's just been really incredible both to see like the, you know, variety of storytelling, like from across the world. Um, and yeah, it's just been really rewarding. I'm really excited. We have, we've accepted, I think 18 stories so far and um, there's a lot that I think are going to come back that we've, we've, we're doing like R&Rs as well. So if we're like, okay, the story is like almost to the point where it's, you know, it's hitting the mark for us. And then we, you know, offer a little bit of feedback and have the writer, you know, revise and resubmit. Um, so there's a lot of R&Rs um, that we're waiting on. So it may be a way bigger book than I anticipated, which I'm really excited about. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, what is... What is the biggest thing that kills a submission for you? And conversely, what is the biggest thing you see in a submission that makes you say, oh yeah, I want this? Oh, hmm. I think one thing, I mean, the most common thing is just the over, like the use of cliches, mm. um, which use, which is like, I can tolerate a few, but if I hit, maybe like a couple pages into a story and each page has like at least one cliche. I'm like, okay, that's probably not gonna be good. <laughs> so cliche <laughs> meaning like, it can be like, you know, I woke up and I, and my, you know, I was, I couldn't breathe and I had a nightmare and, you know, just the same kind of setup of a character waking up and mm-hmm. a bad thing happened or they have a bad memory um, or they um, kind of use a typical like, uh, traditional like monster from folklore or myth mm. and don't mm-hmm. um, introduce like an interesting subversion or like reversal or like take on it. It doesn't always have to be like something totally different, but if they're just using playing the monster like straight, like usually it's not enough. I don't know. For me, that's just not interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. What else? Bad pacing. That's really mm. rough. I mean, 6,000 words is a pretty solid length. Um, and I'm a pretty generous reader, but if I'm struggling through the story, it, that, that can be, that can really kill my enjoyment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I understand, you know, suspense and pacing and you want to build up to the climax, but the longer it is the, and the more time a reader has invested, it needs to have a really good payoff. Most mm-hmm. of the time the payoff is not there. It's not good enough. Um, uh, one thing that I do like which has been interesting is introducing like um i don't know authors will kind of make their own version of like folkloric monsters that have their own rules and are really specific to to the context of like their protagonist you know either the protagonist if it if it even is a real thing maybe Mm -hmm. it's just like in their head um i also like a level of ambiguity too um, both like if there's some sort of speculative element, a monster, um, and just the character's perceptions in general, I find that's usually produces interesting themes. Um, let's see. I, oh, I also like when people um, are, when authors kind of brave um, the scope of a story and make it kind of span beyond just like a day or two like a lot of short stories will kind of limit it to like one scene or one day within a character's life Mm -hmm. Um, but if you can broaden the scope of your story so 
you know, I have a story in the collection that is like takes place over a lifetime and it's not even 6,000 words, but you, it feels like, uh, I don't know. It just feels like you have this entire scope of this character in, in your, in your head at once. And it's like really mm -hmm. impressive to me when a story can do that, especially in short form. Um, to me, that's a sign of a very sophisticated storyteller. So yeah, those are a few, a few things I like. Excuse me. As somebody who's edited anthologies before, what is something important to know about managing a project like that? Mm. Um, so I think it's a lot easier with prose because people have their work finished basically, or as close to finished as they're going to get it. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite different from comics where usually people are signing up to start work on something. Comics anthologies are a lot more difficult to manage because usually the pay rate and the amount of work that goes in aren't always great for anthologies, especially if they're self-funded. <laughs> um, so like, you know, basically trying to keep tabs on everybody to make sure that they're drawing and they're going to hit their deadlines for each stage of the process, like pencils, inks, color, if there's color. Um, so I think comics anthologies are just a little bit challenging in that aspect. Um, but this prose anthology has been way easier because I'm getting, you know, these authors, their finished pieces and then, um, I basically have the shape of the final form of like their final story. Um, and, you know, me and my co-editor, we're going to do, you know, a round of developmental editing and then copy editing. Um, but it's much, it's a much more, um, it's easier process because we're just refining rather than, you know, kind of chasing this author down to like actually create something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, in the meantime, you're also going to be doing some programming for an upcoming convention, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I'm really awesome. excited about it. This will be my first time on that side of uh, a convention and the <laughs> working in the background. Um, mm -hmm. It's something I've I've always wanted to like run my own comics festival. So I'm hoping this will be, this isn't a comics festival, but there will be comics and stuff involved. Mm -hmm. It's mostly for like literary. So like writers, um, game writers, podcasters, critics. It's actually a very you know, wide spanning convention. So I'm very excited about it. Um, but yeah, I'm really uh, honored to be able to do this because the team at Dream Foundry is just so skilled. This will be their third convention, I believe. And they're just like, they're incredible. What they have this tiny staff and they do so many amazing programs throughout the year, including this convention. And yeah, I'm just so excited. Now, because uh, because the theme of this section of the interview is really like you containing multitude. <laughs> um, I, I saw some other pictures on, on Twitter. You throw your own pottery. Oh yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that is, that is amazing. That is amazing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's my, it was my pandemic uh, hobby and I, uh, I really love it. It's super fun. Um, yeah. I rented a wheel from like a local studio and yeah, it's just great. Just, it's also just totally um, different than my usual, like creative process, like working in 3D, working like with my, the entirety of my body, like even my legs, like that was an interesting thing I realized I needed when throwing pottery. Like you have to brace your elbows, you know, against your legs as you form, you know, your vessel. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's been a nice break um, to work in that medium. I, it's so fun, highly recommend. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, maybe I'm envisioning this wrong, like hunched over. Is there like, can that like mess up your back if you're like doing it for too long or? Um, I think it, it kind of depends on your setup. I haven't had any issues and the potter that runs the local studio, he's been doing it since, you know, for like 50, 60 years now and he's fine. And it's kind of like, <laughs> you're not really hunched over. You have, you have to have like a, a lower seat so that mm -hmm your back is kind of, you're leaned forward, but your back is still can be straight, you know, or just like at a natural curve. You're not like totally bowing over, okay. um, but you want to be low. And so your elbows can easily reach your thighs and you're kind of like crunched forward a little bit, but it's not uncomfortable at all. Okay. <laughs> so uh, as we kind of wind down here, uh, we like, we, we love actually to ask uh, creators about their pets. So uh, what can you tell us about your dog? Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. Um, he's sleeping right now. I would grab him. Um, oh, he's been so here have... the whole time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. 
he's very good. He knows when I, you know, put on my earphones and say hello, he immediately goes to sleep because he knows I'm on a Zoom call or podcasting. So <laughs> it's really funny. Um, but yeah, so my youngest, my youngest, like he's my child. Uh, his name is Wick, Wicky Wicky, which means quick in Hawaiian, but I just call him Wick for short. Um, he's a long-haired dachshund. And he's black and brown and has very <laughs> expressive brown eyebrows. Um, and then I have a five-year-old smooth-haired dachshund who's red. She's out playing somewhere. Um, and I inherited her from my grandma. Her name is Maya. And uh, I have a, she's going to be a 12-year-old dog who is part Akita and part something else that I don't know. And mm. she's a bearded old lady. She's beautiful and terrifying um my vets are, are always like she's so interesting looking uh <laughs> they always tell me that and I'm like it's, I can't tell if that's a compliment or an insult but yeah she's has a very unique and beardy scraggly look some people think she looks like a falcor the white oh, dragon wow. but black <laughs> yeah so yes yeah, so those are my three my three doggies um so I also have two dachshunds <gasps> do you oh my god yes <laughs> my dachshund brother <laughs> yes uh my my uh eldest uh, is uh 12 she's uh brown short hair uh oh, that, that's chewy uh she probably probably might be able to hurt her barking upstairs a couple times <laughs> and then uh my younger dog is seven she is I, i'm pretty sure she's a mix because she's like cow spotted and she's got more of a like a snub nose uh, oh, cute. to her but that's that's lola uh we call her derp because her tongue is like out of her mouth oh, most oh, of cute. the time <laughs> <laughs> I, ha- I have to see them i'll bring my in i'll bring all my guys up in a second when we're done okay <laughs> yeah um matt what about you i saw your cat earlier yeah that was Do you best. have more no uh <laughs> oh, nice. our An other only child recently passed away oh, so sad. just it's just bass who's she's 14 and she's a little old lady but she's still she's still getting around hopping around eating and drinking and spending all her time on my lap that she possibly (laughs) can she's the lappiest of lap cats i I podcast from the bedroom because it means she can get up here and curl up on me (laughs) while i podcast and will invariably spend about half the, half to two thirds the podcast on me, and then eventually wander out for dinner, and then wander back if, it, <laughs> if, it, if it's a longer podcast. So cute. Yeah, she, she's a it. she's just a little gray little old lady. She's, <laughs> she, she's my sweetie. She's my little princess. The Aww. silent third host of the show. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what are you what are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading? Let me look at my. Book. So this month for book club, we read um, The Croning by Laird Barron. Okay. Um, I don't know if he's like a, a horror author. I thought it was a pretty solid book. Um, I wasn't crazy about the, pro- he can write really, he writes great, but I wasn't crazy about this character that we follow because he's very avoidant. Um, which is like not fun in a horror story when someone's just like trying to avoid all the bad things. <laughs> um, but it was it was interesting. It was cool. Um, not my favorite though. Um, and then the last thing I read before that was um, a I believe a Polish book, and it was called what's it called? Um, drive your plow, drive your plow over the bones of the dead. Mm. Um, and that was also pretty good again another protagonist that was like kind of so well written and how irritating she was that it was hard to enjoy it but I also like on one level I was like oh this lady is so annoying and on another level I was like this is like so perfectly realistic like I know this person this type of person exists so there's like some sort of like dissonance there (laughs) um but a lot of my book club friends really liked it so yeah I think it's pretty fun Um, But basically it takes place in like rural Poland and this woman um, finds her neighbor is dead and then finds some other people that are dead and she believes it's animals that are returning to take revenge on these people who these dead people who were actually hunters. 
Um, and yeah, it's her following following her as she goes through this mystery. Very cool. Well, yeah. uh, Sloan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, final question as we wrap up, uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, Grave and I and uh, you know, look ahead to Prism Stalker 2, uh, probably not the actual title, uh, and everything else you have going on? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. My Twitter is at Sloan Sloan. My website is sloanslone.com. Um, those are pretty much the main things. I'm on Instagram, but not super active, but that's at Sloan Leong. Uh, but yeah, Twitter and just my website is a good place to go if you want to find my work. Um, Prism Stalker 2 will be out, I'm hoping by summer next year, maybe fall. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else I have on the docket. Uh, my old oh, Death in the Mouth, my horror anthology will also be out, I'm hoping October of next year. Um, and yeah, that's what I... I got on the schedule so far. All right. Well, Sloan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yay. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris is on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at Comics XF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from Comics XF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and Comics XF at Comics XF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. W-N-Q-A.